Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on October 8th, 2019. I'm Oliver Hotham, filling in for Jacko's Wetsuit, who's away in the Netherlands this weekend. It's a rough and ready roundtable this morning to discuss all the goings on in Sweden over the weekend and what to make of them. I'm joined in the studio by NK News CEO Chad O'Carroll. Hey there. NK Pro Senior Analyst Min Young Lee. Hi. And NK News Senior Correspondent Dagam G. So, I think to start with, uh, for those of you that were living under a rock over the weekend, uh, we had some working level talks between North Korea and the US. Um, they began on Friday. There was preliminary talks between the two sides in Stockholm, kind of working out the plan for what was going to be the working level talks the next day. These were pretty big deal, I think, safe to say. This was the first meetings of their kind between the two sides uh, since the Hanoi summit. And... Things seemed to start off pretty well, but then it became clear on Saturday that things weren't going well when the North Koreans uh, issued a statement from their embassy explaining that uh, the North, the US had offered them nothing new. There was no new proposition from the American side. And the North Koreans said it was unlikely that uh, talks would continue unless there was a massive uh, reorientation of American policy. But in contrast, the US State Department uh, gave a rather more glowing assessment of the proceedings saying that uh, we had good conversations um, and that we're looking forward to meeting with the North Koreans again. So Chad, I think to start with you, what is, what's your take on these two sides of the story um, and who do you think might be telling the truth? Well, as with all these kind of things, I think the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, when you look at the photos and some of the video that came out of Saturday's meetings, um, it looked quite civil, you know, there were uh, pictures or like commemorative photo being taken of uh, Begin's team with Alison Hooker alongside the North Koreans outside of the conference facility. Uh, from what I heard from sources, it was a pretty civil discourse. Uh, it certainly wasn't the disgusting tone that the North Koreans implied uh, in state media. Um, but whatever the reason um, for the difference in view on the North Korean perspective, um, they decided to present this in much starker terms than the uh, meeting actually was in terms of tone and atmosphere. But to be fair to them, I do think that they were expecting something else from this talks. While So on Friday, there was a, a protocol meeting which we understood from a source was basically the US's way of determining whether or not the North Koreans were serious. Um, there was fear that they might come with an ultimatum. Um, and so they wanted to have this protocol meeting first to determine if the North Koreans are going to actually be open to a, a sort of practical working level talk in which Began can participate in the next day. Uh, that those talks, when they took place, uh, from what I understand, the U.S. perspective was more trying to get to know the other side, um, find consensus to uh, conduct more frequent uh, talks in a similar manner in order to build confidence. And then the sort of denuclearization process would stem from there. Well, I think the North Koreans knew that that was the U.S. perspective going in. They did because of the dropping of John Bolton recently and due to Trump's remarks on new methods, etc. They were expecting something um, a lot more substantive in terms of concessions. And so that's where the difference of opinion has emerged and why uh, the North Koreans feel there's no point in continuing these talks. In the uh, run-up to the uh, talks, we had all sorts of speculation about what might potentially be on the cards. 
Um, there were a couple of uh, reports. I think it was in Time and in Vox, sort of detailing what was expected. Um, Dagan, what was the idea going in about what the North Koreans would offer the Americans and what the Americans would offer the North Koreans in return? I think um, North Korea would definitely put the agenda of security guarantees on the table, and I think everyone knows that based on state media report. And from the U.S. side, um, personally, I don't think um, they could bring anything new to the negotiation table. So this is the thing. I think um, there is fundamentally um, different gap in expectations um, for the working level negotiation held on Friday and Saturday. I believe um, the U.S. Um, think this is the starting point to resume um negotiations and from the North Korean side I think they believe that this is the stepping stones to um, hold the third DPRK and US summit so from the North Korean side I think they as they say they would have um, high expectations of the working level negotiations but from the US side I don't think um, they could bring anything new anything fresh um, at the current stage. Well, for, from what I heard, the, the new part was that up until Hanoi, the US perspective was full denuclearization, extremely short timeline, then concessions. And I think the new calculation from the US side, if I gather correctly, is that they're open to a slow dialogue process, but one where there is no actual meat provided to the North Koreans until those denuclearization steps, which is completely insufficient for North Korea. And I think anyone that studies North Korea could have told you that. Yeah, one of the you mentioned this, Chad. One of the uh, big factors ahead of these talks that made many led many to believe that the U.S. would be open to a more, I guess, flexible approach was the firing of longtime National Security Advisor John Bolton. What do we make of that decision? Do you think that was a conscious signal to Pyongyang, or was that much more driven by, I guess, other factors as well? Yeah, I think it was probably driven for a range of factors, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Trump's failed Taliban meeting. September the 11th could have been, could have precipitated very harsh criticism from Bolton and uh, maybe part of it as well. But the North Korea, I, I don't think it was just a specific North Korea decision. Um, I don't think the Trump administration is that desperate to to solve the North Korea issue that it you know hires and fires based on that criteria. And um, another, I guess, theme in the run up to the talks was this idea of a new calculation. Um, something that North Korea has been talking about for a while, but something that we really saw amped up in the weeks before the talks. Uh, Minyoung, would you be able to like, give us a brief rundown about what that means um, and the sort of the the ways it's been delivered by the North Koreans? So for about two weeks in the lead up to the Stockholm talks, uh, North Korean media has consistently said that it is time for the U.S. to compensate North Korea for the measures that it has already taken. For example, the ICBM and nuclear test moratorium, uh, the dismantlement of the Pungiri nuclear testing site, uh, the return of U.S. detainees and um, the soldiers' remains. Uh, North Korea has made that pretty clear. And so I think that North Korea made the mistake of misreading the signals from the U.S. side. I think that the only way that North Korea could have agreed to return to the talks was because they thought that the U.S. was willing to give these concessions before they could even talk about denuclearization. 
which North Korea made pretty clear that they were not going to talk about denuclearization until the U.S. gave some compensation for the steps that it has already taken. And then now it seems the North Koreans have a have a new, not really a new demand, but they're framing it as a as a new demand in a sense. This new, um, I guess we could call it a CVID of their own. <laughs> uh, what what is what's the uh, acronym? Uh, so I, 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 there was one South Korean media report um, this morning um, coining the term as CIWH, completely and irreversibly withdraw the hostile policy. Um, so one thing that really struck me as I was reading the North Korean foreign ministry spokesperson's press statement uh, that, was, that came out on Sunday evening um, was the the term completely and irreversibly <clears throat> withdraw the hostile policy. Uh, withdraw hostile policy, that's a regular theme in North Korean state media. It, it always has been um, for years and years. But the striking thing about this phrase was the completely and irreversibly. And it was striking for two reasons. Um, number one, um, it seemed to echo the, the complete and irreversible in CVID, right? Complete, um, um, verifiable, um, irreversible dismantlement, right? Um, so kind of echoing the CVID. And the second thing that struck me about this was that it seemed to be the first time that state media uh, modified withdraw hostile policy with mm. completely and irreversibly. So I found that interesting because I thought that that could have, that to me that suggested that North Korea could have made bigger demands during the talks. And what kind of demands would those have been? Um, I think something that um, perhaps the U.S. side um, hadn't anticipated or maybe it had anticipated but weren't willing to give. And at a minimum, I think that the North Koreans probably insisted on being compensated for those steps that it has already taken. And, you know, those probably were um, some sort of security guarantees, um, such as a scaling down of further scaling down. Um, of ROK U.S. joint military drills, um, if not complete termination of, um, and easing of sanctions. Those are the two themes that North Korean media has consistently um, emphasized in the last two weeks. Well, one other thing that came out in the, the transcript uh, of the uh, North Korean statement by Kim Jong-il uh, and their travel back to uh, Pyongyang via the Beijing airport was that and this is something we always hear, um, is that the North Koreans feel there's not been enough U.S. efforts to build trust between the two countries. And they actually put a number on it. They said there's been 15 new sanctions since the Singapore summit. They didn't specify what those are, but I can imagine they're a combination of OFAC designations, uh, new um, advisories from Treasury, uh, things like that. And of course, the U.S. blockages at the uh, UN Security Council for uh, Food and Development Aid. Seizure of the wise honest as well. Seizure of, yeah, things like that. Um, which I, I objectively as well, when you look at it, it doesn't, I understand from the US perspective, it's like a sanctions maintenance thing, but it doesn't help foster trust in, in my opinion. And so I do sympathize with the North Koreans on that perspective. So I think, yeah, they, they just feel like that the post-Singapore implementation has not been good enough on the US side. And then, of course, the U.S. rightly also have uh, reason to be unhappy with the North Korean implementation of some of these things like the uh, rocket stand at uh, Sohei, which is still standing. 
Yeah, and um, I suppose the star of this weekend's negotiations with Mr. Kim Yong-gil, um, the North Korean chief negotiator who delivered the news on the steps of the embassy on Saturday night. Um, Dagam, you wrote an in-depth profile of, of Mr. Ambassador Kim, I should say, uh, last week. You sp- spoke to former officials and tried to paint a picture of his, his career so far. Um, do you think this, I guess, hardline attitude ties in with what you learned uh, when you wrote that profile last week? Yeah, I think, in a way, the profile is consistent with um, his behavior in Stockholm. Firstly, um, I figure out he um, had maintained a high profile in media when he was um, engaged in six-party talks and four-party talks, and he when he served as ambassador to deputy ambassador to the UN in New York. Mm, that's and I that's why I expect that he may be open to media after the working level talks, and I think I was right in that perspective. And another fact is um, he has veteran diplomat. As I said, he has engaged in six-party talks and four-party talks, and he also chief uh, delegate to the working level of six-party talks working group on economic and energy corporations. And, I, and in, the, in that vein, I think he knows the U.S. policy very well and U.S. behavior very well. So, But apart from his characteristic and experience, I think he should go hard in this negotiation. I mean, this negotiation is not relate to his like personal characteristic and personal um experience because um he's not the one who can um make decisions and he has to follow the like someone's order. So I don't think his personal characteristics um ha- was the major or important factors in this negotiation. But I think um he has he had went through all the experience of failure in negotiation with the US in the past decade, and I think in that vein, he may be really pessimistic about the negotiation, and that's why he was going hard, yeah. Mm. And Minya, what's the reaction been in Seoul then to the, the, I guess, the news that the talks were unsuccessful? I think that uh, the Blue House has been trying to um, emphasize that um, the momentum has not been lost. Uh, which I think is in line with what you would expect from the Moon Moon administration, um, trying to keep up the positive tone there. Uh, And I also believe that Lee Do-hun, the South Korean top negotiator, um, has um, left for Washington. He's been dispatched. uh, He's set to meet Began tomorrow, I think. With the U.S. side. Could have just done a phone call, save taxpayers money. But But I want to point out that um, before the working level negotiations, when President Moon Jae-in and President Donald Trump met in New York, and the Blue House emphasized that um, the working level talks um, is the path toward the achievement of like substantive progress um, and um, to achieve the denuclearizations and to establish permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula. So after um, Trump meeting, they um, kept emphasizing that the working level talks would lead to substantive progress in denuclearizations. But on the other hand, the White House didn't mention anything about the working level negotiations. But in the perspective, I think um, South Korean government, in a way, try to accelerate the working level mm. negotiations between the DPRK and the U.S. 
And in this perspective, maybe um, the U.S. and North Korea fell to adjust expectations of their working level negotiations. I think North Korea has too much high expectations. Well, and if you remember as well, during that summit between Moon and Trump, Moon said again that all oh, the, the third summit between the two, between Kim Jong-un and Trump is going to be a great <laughs> occasion, which again, giving the North Koreans the sense that these working level talks were just a sort of springboard to another summit. Um, and a, a consistent problem we've seen, obviously, has been that the South Koreans keep giving the North Koreans mismatched expectations, mismatched right? expectations and essentially framing things in an overly optimistic sense. So when the working level negotiations actually started, the North Koreans thought they were going to get something which they weren't even offered. But what's the strategy? Is it like you close your eyes, kick your heels together and end up in Kansas or is it is it is it like just hoping for you know hoping for the best and and somehow that will that hope and the momentum that springs from it will just make it happen i i mean that's like the only way i can interpret it and it seems like a very far-fetched strategy if that is how one goes about trying to resolve a serious security issue last week i remember that this um the moon administration um had hopes for kim jong-un coming to seoul no more to south korea um so i guess there's the asean summit uh taking place in busan in november and i think that there was some talk about (laughs) talk about (laughs) kim jong-un possibly coming down to busan if these working level talks go well. And obviously, of course, that was last week and before the working level talks. Um, but this definitely has got to be a disappointment. One more I disappointment think, for this administration. But playing it, playing it all out in public, though, like, oh, we, you know, NIS giving uh, briefing lawmakers that they judge that Kim Jong-un might come to Pusan. These are the kinds of things that should be done behind closed doors if there's to be any chance of North Korea responding Positively, in my opinion. So I, I think the NIS floated that on purpose. Yeah. That's just my take because of what's going on domestically. Um, President Moon, as we all know, is um, faced with a lot of um, trouble at home because of the justice minister. So I think that was maybe one strategy that they had in mind to divert the public's attention. But unfortunately, I don't think it worked. Yeah. I think the Moon Jae-in government should change their um, strategy in a way. So my sense is that they um, strongly believe that the best ways to solve the pending issues that make them um, sit together at the negotiation table, even though they're not ready, they can solve the issues at the negotiation table. And that's their belief, belief I believe. Um, but I think this is wrong directions, um, as we've seen last week. At the failure of um through the failure of working level negotiations, I don't think they shouldn't have um pushed the North Korea and the U.S. to sit down at the negotiation table, regardless of preparedness. I mean, there's a sense that because there is so little that the Moon Jae-in administration can actually do on this front, you know, they've the inter-Korean efforts have stalled. There's not really much else they can actually do beyond keep the momentum going and there's a sense that keeping momentum going for momentum's sake is is sort of an end in and of itself right the idea is that well if we keep the us and north korea talking then then things will go well um but at the same time there i don't really see anything any any other way they could do it right they want to stay involved it's like a plat it's a plat plank of moon jae-in's policy but i 
I just stay silent, not get involved. Press say, what are your expectations for working level talks? They just go, we have no comment. I mean, we're not hearing a lot from China at the moment on this issue. We're not hearing a lot from Japan, like daily commentary yet, hoping for summits. Maybe that would be a more prudent approach. But yeah, it's 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 a bit embarrassing to watch. And I, I don't think it will help future administrations that are progressive, liberal, pro-engagement that Moon has sort of been embarrassed so much by Kim and made to look like the the teenage uh, boyfriend being left by the girl at the doorstep. On that note, um, <laughs> how likely would we say it is that we'll see a missile test this week? Uh, well, there's the party founding anniversary coming down the pike um, this Thursday, I believe, yeah. um, the 10th. Uh, so it would be a nice way to boost everybody's morale a nice way to sort of celebrate the event uh they have been playing up the event a lot for a non-major anniversary year um by really uh playing up kim jong-un's accomplishments uh which is a major uh difference um from previous years where the focus really was on kim il-sung and kim jong-il uh, maybe, yeah, I mean, in the lead up to the party founding anniversary. But if not uh, this week, I I imagine that they are going to do something um, before the end of the year if there's no progress on the talks front. Uh, and of course, last week saw the test of North Korea's new SLBM, the Bukuk Song 3. Uh, Chad, what, what would you say they might choose this time? I mean, you, they could do something like uh, quadruple... Uh, launch simultaneous launch of short-range solid fuel missiles that would still theoretically be under the threshold of of uh, the red line seemingly set around uh, full range intermediate uh, ballistic missile range testing and ICBM testing um, I think we should watch to see what happens at the UN Security Council this week the, you know the Europeans have uh, apparently tabled a uh, discussion on the SLBM uh, missile launch last week, which is a launch that I understand the White House and State Department really did their best to, to not comment on or or um, criticize too much in order to facilitate Sweden's the talks in Sweden. Um, so that could precipitate something. But I think like bigger picture, this North Korea is in a really it seems to what their goal seems to be is to sharpen the strategic choice that the Trump administration faces ahead of a very important election year for Trump. So in the next few months, they're going to probably want to make it seem like in January next year, there's going to be ICBM testing. Uh, sorry, in, in the new year, there'll be ICBM testing, there'll be missile testing, uh, nuclear testing, which would all undermine Trump and his supposed foreign policy success, like a key pillar of that being North Korea. So I think they want to increase that risk in Trump's mind so that he might do something radical to mitigate that through either providing sanctions relief or some kind of very solid security guarantees. The problem is um, I don't imagine the US is going to capitulate on the terms North Korea wants. So I think they're miscalculating. And then the really interesting thing comes next year where... Are they really going to go ahead with those kind of tests, which would almost certainly, you would imagine, result in those kind of further UN Security Council sanctions and tightening of the sanctions regime, which they've really benefited from relaxing in the last few uh, months or so, last year, in fact. 
Um, well, of course, the question in that situation would be, even if um, sanctions are tightened, how how willing will China and Russia be to enforce them properly, right? right? That's a good point. Um, and yeah, if the trade war continues to worsen, it could you could imagine the Chinese potentially saying, well, North Korea has tried its best to negotiate in good faith with the US. The US is not willing to meet halfway, which is China's regular talking point. Um, so what do you expect? We're not going to, you know, sanctions are at maximum level now. We, we can't add to them. Yeah, there's been a lot of language from Russia recently saying pretty much the same thing, that it's up to the US to show flexibility. And I think if we were in a situation where we had new sanctions on the table, that would be the argument. And uh, Kim Jong-il, obviously, in uh, Beijing yesterday, um, he gave a little doorstep to a journalist. He was doorstep by a journalist, sorry. Um, he said that, quote unquote, terrible things might happen if the US didn't come up with a new deal uh, for North Korea by the end of the year. What do you think that might involve, Dagam? I don't think we have to overestimate Kim Jong-il's comment in a way because... Um, terrible is quite strong language though, isn't it? Yeah, terrible maybe include the ICBM and nuclear tests, but um, this is not the first time that North Korea threatened the resumption of ICBM and nuclear tests, but they did um, before the South Korea and the U.S. Um, staged the joint military drills in July. Um, in a means to, in a way to um, prevent the resumption of the joint military drills. Um, you don't think it's a legitimate threat? Like threat, we all yeah. know threatened threat to nuke the Pacific. Yeah, but it never ago. happens, you know. Mm. I think it's the classic strategy to increase leverage um, in negotiations. Um, because I don't think it's too early to judge um, whether the working level negotiations um, was successful or not. Maybe this is the first step. I don't think, um, even though U.S. has the new package, I wouldn't release the new package at the first meeting of the working level negotiations after seven months um, meeting after the Hanoi summit. Yeah, and of course, the U.S. State Department has said that you can't undo 70 years of animosity in a, in a weekend, which I think is certainly true. Um, but they've also said that they're hoping for working level talks to resume in the next two weeks. Um, Chad, what would you say is the uh, likelihood of that that going ahead? Zero percent. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, I they they in effect rejected it already. Yeah. 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 I don't. I don't think that we'll, we'll have working level talks anytime soon. I one thing that uh, one other thing that struck me about the foreign ministry readout is that uh, they referred to the hostile policy, which is a broad concept it's also vague i mean it includes security issues it includes economic issues such as sanctions but it could include other things so you know before that they were talking about um hurdles to national development which we take to be sanctions um and threats to national security which um probably were references to, you know, security guarantees but then the use of the word hostile policy um for me that's kind of like you know, they're trying to make it more broad so that it's kind of like paving the way for more demands in the future. I mean, that's kind of how I interpreted, um, you know, the use of that term. Um, sure, they couched it um, by saying that house of policy that threatens our national security and, you know, lays hurdles to the way of our national development. So they couched hostile policy in those terms. But, you know, the, that that term itself is is, is broader than what they've um, talked about um, with regard to the working level talks. Mm -hmm. So I think that's maybe something to look out for is if they make, if, if that's sort of their way of paving the, the way for making bigger demands. 
And Minyong, another thing you've been tracking recently is this increased focus on national defense in official state media, kind mm-hmm. of tying in with, sort of overlapping, shall we say, with this uh, renewed interest in diplomacy. How do you think that ties into this idea of uh, North Korea, say, moving away from a willingness to talk to the US and perhaps more towards this kind of new focus that Kim Jong-un has discussed? So it's been interesting to see the shifts in state media with regard to uh, strengthening defense capabilities. We've seen um, a few shifts um, in the course of the past month. Um, They used language that kind of seemed to point towards um, their contemplation of a return to Pyongyang. Uh, And then they, um, you know, stop altogether, stop using uh, defense capabilities. And then like after two weeks, they start talking about defense capabilities being their number one. Uh, national priority. And, you know, I think there are several possibilities to this. I think that maybe they're not decided about, um, you know, their U.S. policy or on U.S. nuclear negotiations. Um, Perhaps they're uh, paving the way for an alternative in case things don't work out with the U.S. Um, And maybe that's there's a reason for continuing to mollify the defense industry and the munitions industry. And of course, there are so many other factors, too, domestically, um, where after the Hanoi summit, you know, we've we've seen um, this sort of hardening of position uh, with regard to um, outside powers, um, you know, outside influence, um, all these media campaigns to promote domestic unity, um, to further promote uh, Kim Jong-un's leadership. Uh, and, and I think all of those things sort of tie in together to, you know, sort of, I think all of those things do in a way point to a hardening of position on, on North Korea um, towards the external forces, if you will, which again um, could in turn impact it's and and I think has in a way affected its U.S. policy. Yeah, and on that note of increasingly mysterious goings on in North Korea and perhaps paranoia on the part of the authorities, another story that caught a lot of people's attention this this week and last week was an NK News exclusive by Chad about uh, authorities in Pyongyang blocking the windows of hundreds of apartments in the city, <laughs> um, cutting off the view of a large chunk of the of Pyongyang. Um, probably making quite a lot of people who had invested in nice apartments uh, a little bit annoyed. Um, can you talk us through the story, Chad? What's what's going on? Yeah, well, a lot of... Uh, so it's, it's not strictly an exclusive because Daily NK did also mention this back in July, um, but without our exclusive photos. <laughs> um, but basically, the it seems the Ministry of State Security has... Um, uh, covered up either fully or partially the windows of hundreds if not low thousands of apartments uh, facing towards Pyongyang's so-called Forbidden City where the Korean Workers Party headquarters is, where there are other um, senior government officials living in uh, very exclusive shops and so forth. Uh, So that whole neighborhood, if you're say, uh, I, I would imagine like 15th or 16th floor and above, looking towards that area it's safe to say that your apartment windows have probably been covered now and um, it covered with what exactly so in some cases it looks like there are very thick slats which Mm. could be made of wood or possibly daily on case said concrete or cement Uh, in other cases for example a choreo hotel the windows glass has been replaced with a, a translucent plastic material that you can't you can just make out vague contours when you look through it and one tourist told me it's just 
he, he said it, it's the worst thing they could have done. I mean, it really, like, if you're a tourist, you go to North Korea, it basically is a big green tick mark next to all the cliches and stereotypes you have yeah. in your head about this country being completely paranoid and conscious of foreign uh, risks and so on. For me, the thing that's striking about the whole thing, besides just the ugliness of it, is the people in some of these apartments, which, by the way, include the so-called Pyonghattan neighborhood of Chung, Changchun Street. Um, you know, these were very high uh, quality apartments featured prominently in state media. They still are uh, produced in time for the centenary of Kim Il-sung's birth in 2012 gifted one can imagine to some of the most important elites of Pyongyang and then they don't seem to have any trust in the government itself doesn't seem to trust its own people even from this elite top five ten percent and has to block their windows that doesn't seem like a sign of of confidence and while I know the North Koreans in state media have two years ago discussed quite heavily an assassination attempt on Kim Jong-un's life led by the CIA and NIS, it suggests that there are threats potentially and that they're taking them seriously to the point where it's okay to make people's dwellings where their families and friends are invited on Saturday night to, to mingle uh, and making them completely dark. And that's something that's going to impact housing prices, it's going to impact morale. People are, are going to wonder what, what on earth is going on. And uh, for me, it's, just, it's a very depressing uh, development and I can't understand the logic of it. Yeah, on that note, thank you again to Dagam, Minyoung and Chan for coming on the NK News podcast and reviewing the latest updates and news about North Korea. Don't forget you can listen to all our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. Our podcast is produced by Aristair and facilitated by James Fretwell. Listen again next time. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.